This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, the CPA. And Tom Sisti. Tom is general counsel to the Coalition for Government Procurement and also serves as counsel to the CPA as well. So, uh, Tim and Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be here. Thank you, Roger. Good morning. It's great to be here. Great. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. And, you know, I think today, really, we just want to run through uh, sort of where we are with regard to the election and the legislative cycle what it all means, what, what your crystal balls sort of tell us about, you know, the election, post-election, and what we're looking at, you know, um, in the first 100 days of uh, whoever wins the presidency, the new administration, and the new Congress. So, Tim, let's just start with, you know, we're a week out from uh, November 3rd with the election, and I just get your thoughts on, you know, where you see things, and Tom, please do chime in whenever you, you, know, when you feel appropriate. Tim? Well, thank you, Roger. Well, um, let me start out in a macro sense and just um, say uh, the government is operating under a continuing resolution till the 11th of December, and we expect that uh, we'll be able to see an omnibus of some sort to continue the appropriations for the remainder of the fiscal year, although that that is not um, clear exactly the strategy of how that will all work out. There are many other issues that the Congress needs to deal with before they adjourn sometime at the end of December. Um, those include tax extenders, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, and um, possibly some type of COVID relief, both a stimulus for the economy and also helping the uh, people of the United States in their um, circumstances. Uh, included in any kind of COVID package will be uh, regimes about testing and um, vaccination and funding for state and local governments, protections possibly from liability. So the way I look at this, Roger, is I kind of break it up into what's going to happen in the next seven days, what's going to happen after the election to the inauguration, which is a period of about 86 days, and then what's going to happen in the first 100 days of a new administration. And I say new administration, I'm not trying to be partisan in any way when I discuss this, just there'll be changes no matter what happens after election day. And we as um, servants or uh, contractors to the federal government will have to be flexible in understanding what's going on and how we can best continue to provide our service. So the first uh, issue is, like I said, between now and election seven days, there's general uncertainty about what the polls are saying in the context of the president and the Senate and the House elections. And I won't go into the polling. We could talk about that in future conversations, but uh, just suffice it to say, it appears there's general huge interest in the election and early voting, and there's going to be big turnouts during election day. And, um, 
we must understand that it could take time for results to come in. Things might not be decided on election night and things could also go up and down over a period of time where you could have many people voting uh, on election day and large numbers in one direction that are then mitigated by numbers in another direction based on early voting or, or mail-in voting. So that's just something to watch. Um, it appears right now, based on what I've heard from the Hill, that in as much as they're continuing their discussions about a possible COVID deal for relief for the country, it's just running up against the fact that um, there are still major issues that need to be resolved about liability, about state and local funding, about the testing regime that might not be able to be done in the next seven days, not only because they're difficult issues to put into legislation, but also the fact that they need um, floor time for debate and passage. So hope springs eternal that maybe there'll be some type of COVID relief after the election, but that really depends upon maybe the result of the election and whether we have a clear picture as to is the Senate continue to be a Republican majority? Does the House have uh, additional seats for the Democrats versus the Republicans? Um, is the president reelected or is Vice President Biden elected? So that will factor in. And we know that there are spikes in the country going on and hospitalizations going on and that this is a necessity, but uh, it will take a little bit of time uh, after the election to do some type of negotiation to figure out the finance final package. Tom, you have any other insights or anything to add? I think Roger uh, and Tim, COVID uh, has some multiple dimensions to it. You first have this issue of operation warp speed that's going on. What, what will change between now and the election? Probably not a lot. There's talk about the vaccine by the end of the year. If it exists at the end of the year, is there a distribution channel for it? The president speaks of having the military ready to stage that. But the perception of that could influence the outcome. I think also this notion of control of the COVID um, uh, virus, it could be an issue. We're seeing news reports about cases spiking, but the question is, are people viewing cases as an indicator or hospitalizations as an indicator? Whatever the measure is going to be or perceived to be, and could drive uh, certain elements of the outcome as well. So I think, um, you know, it sounds like there's uncertainty. There is. I mean, it's just, it's, it's some of this stuff is hard to bet down. Same thing with the polling, the, the methodologies of polling, the, the uh, sampling. Um. Isn't it the case, though, guys, that, you know, at this point, though, we're not, we're talking about the margins here. Like most people, according to the polls, have pretty much made up their mind, haven't they? I mean, they're pretty... I mean, so we're talking about a small sub, real small subset of the population are voters who are, have yet to make up their minds. Is that fair? Uh, probably, certainly more than the last election. What's interesting, though, is just because of the boom, if you will, and the uh, number of mail-ins, write-ins, whatever those things are, those uh, absentee ballots, uh, we call them absentee ballots in our state. Yeah, the question is going to be, what are the rules in each jurisdiction governing the accounting uh, uh, for the outcome? So it, all this says is that uh, goes to Tim's point that we could not have an immediate answer. Right. 
Tim? My next kind of time frame is post-election, what is called in Washington as the lame duck. It is uh, runs from a period of November 4th until either inauguration or uh, probably more specifically when the Congress adjourns, signy die at the end of December. And so um, as Tom and Roger have mentioned, there could be questions and it could take several weeks or months to determine who's the final victor of the presidential election. And there might also be issues about um, control of the Senate, which I mentioned before. The polls, as both Roger and Tom mentioned, are very close. And so folks are not really sure exactly um, if the Senate will remain in Republican control or will shift to the Democrats. Um, there's kind of a unique little uh, wrinkle too in that Georgia has two senators up for election and that if it's uh, not concluded in on the 3rd of November could actually um, have a runoff election on the 5th of January. So there are many possible scenarios, but there could be a possible scenario where you're not sure if the Senate is uh, still the Republican majority or um, the Democrat majority. And so all of it could, it could come down to those Georgia seats, right? It could absolutely. And all this just leads to the fact that I, as a policymaker and your listeners as, as government servants would like to make sure that the government continues its operation under an appropriations and doesn't have a shutdown, but there could be confusion as to um, how to proceed forward on issues such as tax extenders or the appropriations or yeah, the so, NDAA. Yeah, and Tim and Tom, we, we're up on the break. So when we come back, we can continue that discussion of potential scenarios post-election and with regard to the, you know, the, uh, funding of the uh, of the budget for the year and the continuing resolution that ends on December 7th. We'll come back and continue our discussion of that in just a moment. Uh, uh, my guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy and Tom Sisti, who's the general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement, also supports the CPA. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Uh, I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who serves as counsel to the Coalition for Government Procurement and also lends his legal expertise to the CPA as well. So, guys, welcome back to the show. And, um, Tim, you started in the last segment talking a little bit about sort of the lame duck and the prospects for, you know, addressing the budget and that sort of thing. And with the continuing resolution ending on December 7th, and there are lots of moving parts here going on, like COVID relief. What does that look like? Where are negotiations going to be on that? And, you know, to level set, I mean, I think one of the things you guys talked about a little bit in the last segment is it just kind of essentially looks like we're run, run out of time to at least get something put in place before the election. So in any event, you're talking about the lame duck being, you know, dealing with any kind of COVID relief uh, as well. So Tim, just walk through what you see with regard to the lame duck and the prospects for addressing some of these things. Well, thank you, Roger. Well, so when we left off, I was talking about um, the time period post-election which, uh, as Roger said, is called the lame duck, and that's typically from November 4th until 
the Congress adjourns sine die sometime at the end of December. But you could say that the lame duck goes all the way from November 4th into to the inauguration day, which is 1-2021. Uh, so it's about 86 days. As Roger mentioned, there's a lot to get done in 86 days. The hardest part about getting a lot done in Congress, if there's confusion or disagreement about who's in control and how different elections need to be counted or worked out. And so there's is a possibility, we're, um, Hope Springs Eternal in Washington, that we will have uh, omnibus appropriation sometime before the 11th of December when this current CR runs out, or that we would be able to have some type of additional CR to carry us farther into December so that they can work out the final omnibus appropriations. If, in fact, there still is disagreement about who's in control of the Senate because of the possible Georgia election runoffs or just general disagreement on policy issues, it's possible that the CR could be extended into the new year. My understanding is that the most successful lame duck Congresses uh, during this period were when there was nothing that changed. Um, And we do believe that there will be changes uh, to this Congress this year. So they have to do some tax extenders. They have to do appropriations. It's historical that they normally do the National Defense Authorization Act, which um, covers the Department of Defense. And then there are many other issues. One of the other issues, it continues to be whether there'll be any type of COVID relief that would be passed. And again, for the issues that I mentioned previously, it might be difficult for them to get to that negotiation um, or deal with it based on the fact that there are many issues about testing, issues about state and local funding, issues about um, the amount uh, and size of the package. And all the folks in Congress realize that something needs to be done. The question is whether during this lame duck period, it could be done. Tom, you'd like to add? Yeah, just that. I mean, one of sort of the, the benchmarks, if you will, for legislating is the NDAA. Uh, it has passed every year. I think this is the 60th year um, that Congress will have uh, passed the NDAA. It would be um, a real surprise to see that bill not pass. There are still some outstanding issues in it. I think there are some differences over base naming and uh, some um, issues uh, on expenditures. But by and large, it's expected that that bill should pass regardless of the outcome because it is, it's almost now entrenched in history that it will pass every year. CR, as Tim said, the stability uh, of the outcome will probably dictate not only the, uh, how many CRs we get, but their length. COVID, as you said, hope springs eternal on that, but there seem to be some significant policy issues embedded in that uh, related to funding in the state and some non-COVID issues that have uh, popped up in, in that discussion as well, issues related to voting and, and things like that, which I think is uh, what kind of stalled it um, up until this point. Okay, so what do you guys think will actually happen? <laughs> I mean, it seems to me the imperative of COVID response would lend itself towards, you know, some sort of um, deal be getting done during the lame duck, you know, and, and it seems like the work they're doing now would at least lay the 
foundation for moving forward on that. And what does it, and does it include, would it include something like, I mean, does, continuing resolution, I think, doesn't it have that 3610 language in it with regard to, you know, supporting service contractors who have to sort of stay people, leave them in place while they're not working to ensure they have their, you know, workforce in place when the government fully starts back up? Well, remember, let's just level set. 3610 was passed in the CARES Act. No. Was to maintain employees, service employees in level, in ready state uh, for those circumstances where they could not return uh, to facilities and, uh, and so that the government wouldn't be engaged in startups uh, shut down and contractors wouldn't be trying to uh, modulate their em employee base based on revenues coming in. So that's what existed. It, I believe it's in the CR till December 11th. Keep me honest, Tim. So, and then that's something else that would have to be addressed because the transition out of, of COVID, the COVID environment, is not going to be a flash cut. It's going to be that, a, a transition to normalcy, whatever the outcome here. And um, that means you're going to need to maintain these supports that you have in place for COVID, like uh, 3610, until we start seeing light at the end of the tunnel with it. Tim, your thoughts? To, to answer your question, Roger, I think it, um, in many cases, we wish in public policy that there weren't the factors of politics and deal making, but that's part of it. And I think it'll depend upon um, both sides feeling about whether they are addressing the issues they feel are most important with COVID example, state and local funding, liability, testing, tracking, that they would go ahead with a deal or that they would feel like they would have a better position for negotiation if, in fact, the administration changed or the Senate changed majorities uh, or if there were significant changes in the House elections also. So I think it's too early to tell, but we could come back um, a week maybe after the election and give you an update on that. I think one other major thing that we need to discuss or at least just hit on is that um, we're hoping that uh, the election goes smoothly and that there are no types of protests and that um, government functioning isn't um, in any way impeded. But um, we're watching that to make sure that things are going well with that. And then I think also you're going to have a regime that's going to start the um, vaccination of people for the COVID and who that'll go to, how that will be distributed, who will get it first. And so that will be um, another big event in, in this November timeframe when so many things are moving. Well, thanks. And so just to, you know, a lay person here, let me get it straight is, so they, you know, they could come back and, just do another continuing resolution, right? Rather than and have that through the rest of the fiscal year or then come back, do a short-term CR and then pass budgets in the new Congress, is that? Yes, they could be either one. And it's, it will be probably, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be outcome-driven, correct? Yes, I mean, um, typically the scenario has been that they try to negotiate the uh, omnibus appropriations as they reach that December 11th deadline. And then if it doesn't appear that they can get the uh, omnibus appropriations over the line, then they opt for possibly a week long uh, extension to the continuing resolution 
they might do that. And then if it still appears that things are um, intractable, the put it into uh, another CR that could possibly be uh, as far as February, which would make sense. Uh, and I know in the next segment, we'll talk about um, the first 100 days. And so that's something that we can discuss. Right. And so leverage wise, I guess, you know, people have to figure out what makes sense from their perspective in terms of putting their imprint upon, you know, the budget, whether continuing resolution till February gives them you know, greater leverage or not, right? At the end of the day, that's what we're really talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we're up on the break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the first 100 days. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti, who is the general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement and also provides support to the CPA. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who is General Counsel for the Coalition, and also provides legal counsel to the CPA as well. So, and guys, um, this segment, let's just talk about the first 100 days. And I know it's tough to do because we don't, we're, we're doing crystal ball here. We don't know who's going to win or not, but I think there's some fundamental things that regardless of who wins, people are gonna have to address and be thinking about and that sort of thing. And um, so Tim, your thoughts and- Thank you, Roger. So um, historically different administrations are graded on how they do in their first hundred days. And the first hundred days typically goes from inauguration for a hundred days. And so inauguration this year is on the 20th of January so the first 100 days would go until um, almost April 1st. So I, I think what we just need to say, Roger, is we said in the last segments, there was uncertainty before the election, there's uncertainty after the election in the lame duck and whether appropriations will be continued or, or completed, whether the NDA will be completed. A common theme in all these periods of time is uncertainty and in as much as there should be more certainty that we would know who the executive uh, is and hopefully what who controls the Senate and who controls the House. And so as soon as we really are certain about that, no matter what time it is, the administration, either the current administration or a future administration, will begin to start working on its future policy legislation. And to do that, it needs to bring in the federal civilian workforce and experts into the executive branch, uh, into the White House, into the Senate, into the House. Um, there will definitely be leadership changes in the, in the House and the Senate based on um, just retirements and different members winning or losing election. And so in as much as you're going to have more diversity and new faces and new ideas in that there's also that um, learning curve that people have to get up to speed with. And many times the staff is very helpful on that, but it, it will take time. And so the reason we talk about the 100 days in public policy is because that's typically when the administration has the most momentum to get things done that it really wants to highlight as its um, future achievements for the next two to four years. And so um, hopefully this period will be marked with folks coming together, both internally in the parties and compromise possibly between 
uh, Democrats and the Republicans, and hopefully people working together uh, in the context of COVID relief, in the context of possibly wrapping up appropriations from the previous fiscal year, in the context of possibly drawing up the new budget for the next fiscal year. Well, I just, if I could add, I think that um, the outcome of the election could have an impact on what we familiarly recognize as the transition period where teams come together and vet policy issues, as Tim is discussing, um, whether they, there'll be a transition, whether it's a new administration or the continuing administration, because people will be level setting, uh, adjusting, reorienting, whatever you want to say, the policy focus um, going forward. And it's at that time where the uh, uh, various interests try and uh, present in an organized fashion uh, critical issues, certainly in our community and others, uh, that will be considered uh, from the standpoint of either administrative, uh, regulatory policy, or even legislative change, proposals for legislative change that could be given to the new Congress. Uh, these are important time periods. They're marked, uh, there's sort of um, a cycle to them. Uh, people so hit the ground running. Right. So let me ask you guys, so just your thoughts, and we'll just run down through some of these topics. So, and again, we're trying to, you know, with regard to thinking about whether the Democrats or the Republicans gain control of the White House um, or, you know, maintain, in the case of Republicans. So infrastructure investment, what do you, do you see the new Congress, first hundred days doing something with regard to infrastructure? Yes. Yeah. I, I do, Roger. I believe, um, you know, the, uh, the current president, he's discussed infrastructure quite a few times. Um, he's uh, mentioned it in the election. I know that um, the, vice, the former vice president has mentioned it significantly as a top priority, uh, both com for, for communities and then also research and development and science, um, in, including um, you know, factories and other infrastructure that, you know, roads and bridges, um, they feel that that would be an important part of a COVID relief um, or post-COVID relief so that we could continue to grow the economy and increase employment and, and take care of much needed infrastructure investment. All right. Tom? Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's, it, it, the only difference would be in uh, in matters of degree. I think both sides are are focused on some kind of infrastructure. And remember that infrastructure, we tend to think of oh roads. No, infrastructure is also technology, um, technological improvements to government programs, modernization or digitization of government programs, and uh, things like the government supply chain. So yeah, you're going, I was just going to go there next to like IT modernization or some people use digital transformation. Do you see that as a, you know, as a top sort of target of the new Congress, uh, who, you know, however it's composed? Oh, Roger, thank you. I, I definitely do. I think that um, very much the Congress and the executive branch want to come together and try to figure out um, the best practices and the things that have worked. And, and try to cascade those across all of government as we move forward um, in the current COVID situation, as it winds down and the possibility that there could be um, future um, COVID situations. And so uh, I think 
based on those best practices and the analysis of the data that they'll also be able to do some, as Tom mentioned, infrastructure spending on IT modernization or other ways of connectivity, not only for federal employees, but for um, the citizens to be able to connect to our government. Tom? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, COVID opened up uh, everyone's eyes to a lot of issues uh, in, in, go in government and in society generally. I think the government has been on a march and will continue on a march towards a data-driven uh, management environment, leveraging data to manage its programs. Um, I think it, it enhances program efficiency it, because it gives program indicia um, that permit um, really course corrections, if you will, in, in the performance of government uh, programs that gives them an opportunity to reduce waste and performance time and make all the changes necessary to support rapid innovation that's really needed in the current environment. But you need, a, a you know, for data-driven management, you need an organizational construct. So, you know, the government, you can, you can guess that as the government gets deeper and deeper into this, um, they're probably going to set up metrics or some kind of benchmarking um, to assess the uh, digital transformation that takes place, you know, expected process time, total cost of acquisition, like direct and indirect costs of any approach take, and transparency mechanisms and indicators like dashboards and stuff like that. Well, there are, but part of this has got to be, you know, accompanying those measures has got to be the, the appropriate investments. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the prospects for that kind of investment coming from the Hill. We'll also talk about the industrial base and, you know, I guess, you know, the, the focus on China and perhaps in the new Congress, or at least what their pers the new Congress's perspective is likely to look like in the post sort of COVID world as we move to that. Uh, my guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy and Tom Sisti, who is the general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement and supports the CPA as well. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com performance. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guests today are Tim Cook. Tim is the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti is general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement and also supports the CPA as well. So, and guys, just around IT modernization, that's something that, you know, I think, you know, since about the turn of the century, right, back in 2000 when I was still in government, you start, you're hearing about IT modernization, we got to make investments, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. We're still having sort of same conversations 
across the board today. And so I just want to get your thoughts on what are the opportunities, the challenges, just, you know, the atmospherics of IT modernization, I guess, for lack of a better term. And Tom, I guess I'll start with you. Well, I think if you remember back then, uh, and it may still be a problem now, uh, the big complaint about IT was that I never get what I want. I never get, I, I pay more than I wanted to pay and I never get it in time. And I think the challenge has always been uh, working within our acquisition system uh, and confronting the uh, increasing pace of innovation. You know, the, the rate of innovation doesn't necessarily align with the, the timeline of, of given acquisitions. And so we have to revisit how, how are we going to incent an innovative IT modernization process. That means we have to deal with some of the incentives that exist um, in the system itself. You have to look at the uh, incentives driven by the appropriations process, the, the general legislative branch, um, the mission of the agency, um, the over, certainly oversight process. Putting all that together, you start to realize, okay, we can't engage in an initiative that is basically trying to improve a system that um, is out of alignment, if you will, um, because you can have a better out of alignment system, but still be out of alignment. Um, I think that you saw some of the recognition of the need for rapid innovation because of our global ecosystem, the need for rapid innovation um, in the management by uh, government technology act and the, um, Technology Modernization Fund that was established there. It was and also, isn't it the use of other transactions authority, you know, real life example of going sort of outside this far base system to get things more rapidly? Um, it is, but, but it's in the context of, of uh, research and prototyping and things like that, although you can add production, right. production sure. process. That, but is that was that process really designed to be your standard IT acquisition process or was it really designed to be for research and, and prototyping? I mean, it may have evolved to that. One could argue that its, it's increased use is, is sort of a symptom of a greater problem. The innovation that was going to discuss under the um, Management Government Technology Act and the Technology Modernization Fund. So the idea of having a big central fund, it could be replenished, but also incenting agencies to find savings, put them in capital funds and make use of those funds for a date certain, uh, a time period certain, uh, so that they'd be, there'd be two, two factors or two forces at play, uh, finding ways to improve and reorienting uh, funding to uh, the production uh, or modernization, if you will, or digitization. Uh, does that, does that re I mean, does not reflect, you know, the challenges with our current fiscal law structure in terms of making capital investments to replace technology versus maintaining, you know, the, the installed base. It's much easier to execute and fund things that are already in existence as opposed to, you know, providing the funding to re completely replace it, or is, or my, is my impression mistaken? Well, the you know, to, to the extent you're talking about the annual uh, appropriations process, it may, but there is a legitimate oversight process or oversight role, if you will, for the appropriators. That is their constitutional duty to uh, identify funding for programs to and to make sure 
that that funding is being spent wisely. So it's it's really trying to bring all of those legitimate incentives together. Uh, there are management tools that could be put in place by the government to uh, really uh, expedite the implementation of a solution and identify when that solution doesn't look like it's going to be a success. Um, we, we talked about a little bit in the other segment, this idea of, um, of setting up benchmarks and having transparency mechanisms like dashboards to keep not only the stakeholders engaged, but to keep them aware. These measurements, these uh, benchmarks, probably should be established not only on the government side, because the government, it's, it's nothing against the government, but the government has one perspective. It needs the perspective of its supply base to come in and inform what are useful metrics in, in assessing modernization um, and digitization so that it can move forward with realistic tools that, um, that sort of benchmark uh, and, and provide the hallmarks for success. I think that you have to leverage this, these benchmarks once you have them sort of dynamically across the management spectrum so that um, from the standpoint of operating a program, the government is always adhering to them that you're, you're creating an environment that's consistent, that's familiar to all the participants in this environment. Um, I, the government's going to have to use them in, in a consistent way as well from the standpoint of saying, hey, look, if performance doesn't work, if the vision isn't there, uh, then we stop. At that point, check for a viable value-based remediation option. If it's not there, then you say, all right, we're just going to move forward. You, you make this part of the personnel system in a way. The people who are running the programs responsible for adhering to this. I mean, it's got, it's got to be a whole, whole of management approach, I think, to the, uh, to the process. It's not, let's, re, let's try and make this faster, you know, let's try and spend less money. I mean, yes, it's nice to have those uh, process improvements, but if you're not really addressing the organic nature of the modernization or digitization effort, um, you're, you're missing the opportunity. All right, so I think we I think we covered that one, Tom. So I want to ask Tim. You know, one of the things that I think COVID nineteen and you know our response to it, and I say our collective as a country response to it, has highlighted is um, the industrial base and um, you know the you know dependency for on some critical in some critical industries on you know foreign sources and. At least that's, I think, the perception that, you know, Congress is, you know, waking up to, I guess. Um, so I just want to get your perspective on, you know, the con congressional view on that and what you would, you anticipate in a new Congress, you know, regardless of who wins. So what you're focusing on right now is just in line with what we talked about, different periods of government. We're now into a, a situation where, um, the inauguration has happened, the first 100 days have gone by, and now really Congress is in place, the executive branch is in place, people are filling in to their different roles, and we're now going back to the, the work of government, which is executive branch producing a budget, providing it to Congress, and Congress moving forward uh, with their initiatives, 
in the appropriations and authorization process. And I think a main focus of that will be looking at case studies, seeing what has worked and hasn't worked. How do we uh, safely and effectively and efficiently continue with the government, realizing that we need to make sure that we don't have any interruptions of the supply chain, um, any depletion of a stockpile for future issues. And then, as you mentioned, this issue about the industrial base and how do we incentivize companies to return their manufacturing to the United States and allow us to be more in control of our supply chain so that we know what the active ingredients are, we know where it was manufactured in and what the mill spec is to it so that it can be properly used um, by our citizens and our government as we move forward. And, and I think that will be a major focus of both the, the National Defense Authorization Act, but also um, other commerce initiatives and um, tax and incentive initiatives in any future tax policy. Right, and do you see this as a this is a bipartisan concern? I do believe this is a very bi bipartisan concern that um, we've learned a lot from um, the the last eight months, and, and we've learned a lot about IT modernization. We've learned a lot about workforce. We've learned a lot about supply chain and interruptions and stockpiling and uh, and and how how can we move forward with these case studies to make sure that they don't happen again using um, maybe machine learning and artificial intelligence, big data, and other tools that we now have at our disposal in the federal government. Tom, final thought? Yeah, I totally agree. I think they're in, in a highly partisan environment, one of the few bipartisan issues is really how uh, we reassess our relationship with China. In this session of Congress, there were at least five pieces of legislation that addressed um, medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, et cetera. And I think it was a real eye opener with COVID that people didn't realize um, how much of our PPE, our medical supplies, our pharmaceuticals come from China and out offshore, 85%. Um, and how there are different standards for um, for producing that uh, those pharmaceuticals. So you anticipate it being a big focus of the new Congress. Huge focus of the new Congress. All right, well, that's great. I want to thank my guest today, Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, general counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement, and um, legal counsel to the CPA as well. So, guys, thank you for being on the show. I'm Roger Waldron. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher 
And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.